which is why they joined Privia to begin with. They're agreeing to join a group that is focused on where the industry's headed, which it, there, there's a big component of fee-for-service, there's a big component of quality, there's a big component of value-based care, et cetera. There's many components to it, but they're buying in and they understand that what we can do is help them Welcome back to The Break Room. I am your host, Alexis Murray, and thank you for joining us for episode 17. Forbes magazine wrapped up 2018 by sharing their top eight healthcare predictions. Their first prediction was that 15% of global healthcare spending will be tied to value-based models. This transition to value and cost effectiveness will be particularly important for countries that spend a significant amount of their gross domestic product on healthcare, like the United States, Japan, and Canada. There has been a bit of a slowdown with the transition to value-based care, but have we finally reached the tipping point? Today, we're joined by Mark Folk, Privia's new Executive Vice President of Transformational Value-Based Care, to talk about this and to discuss the future of value-based care and how physicians can continue to engage in this transition. Mark leads the effort to transition existing and new provider markets toward additional value-based arrangements. He also oversees clinical and value-based operations and partners with market leadership to optimize performance-based reimbursement programs. Before joining Privia, Mark spent years working at Cigna HealthSpring, and he earned his Bachelor of Science in Business Administration from Virginia Commonwealth University. So thank you for joining today. First off, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to a career in healthcare? Sure. Uh, like many, uh, that was not my original plan. I, I went to school, finance major, headed toward Wall Street was what the goal was. But my, I guess, senior year in college, I wanted to get ahead of the crowd and, and get a job. So I started working for a company that was a medical malpractice provider. And uh, this really started in the mailroom, one of the whole truth. Worked there for a couple of years, still intending to go to Wall Street when I met this woman who kind of caught my heart and made me stay in Richmond, Virginia. And I stayed working at the medical malpractice company for about 12 years. But during that time, it kind of opened up, you know, the world of healthcare to me. So that, that was a medical malpractice company. It was owned by hospitals and doctors. So it was called a reciprocal model. So what that means is that they owned the mechanism. Not to get technical, but basically it was their money and we serviced their money and, and covered insurance claims. And so you started to get the feel for healthcare. What was important to hospitals, what we're driving over 12 years, it's a lot of time involved with hospitals, kind of understand the dynamics of the market, what's impacting hospitals, what's impacting doctors. Then that went through a cycle that went out of business. And just in, in that field, there's what's called soft and hard markets and hard markets are tough. And that company actually went out of business, kind of post Enron, if you would. And the chairman of a local committee ran a hospital. He was the he was CEO of a hospital. Basically, asked me if I wanted to come to the hospital, think about uh, it was a not for profit health system, but they wanted me to work on for profit ventures. So we did things like built pharmacies, we built outpatient diagnostic centers, we um, engaged. Uh, I mean, I did um, physician recruitment. So at that point in time, I had a little bit of background in the hospitals. What's important to it? All of a sudden, now I'm in a senior leadership position at the hospital. And I was like, started learning more about what are the financials, what's what are the drivers for healthcare. Never was an administrator type person, meaning that I didn't I didn't manage the the nursing floors, I didn't manage the the lab, any of those type of things. But I, I did understand what was driving the nurses. A lot about culture, what was the cultural impact at the hospital, how we impacted um, patient satisfaction, which originally began with employee satisfaction, obviously. 
And then from that point, um, I got much more involved in the for-profit stuff. I won't go into that. About seven years after that, I had a guy named Sean Morris, who's their CEO, come to me. At the time, he was working at HealthSpring, which is a Medicare Advantage company. So it worked with seniors, and it, it, it was the private side of Medicare. And what they needed was a, a hospital, someone with hospital experience that understood healthcare and had a kind of, in, you know, um, the intersection of the hospitals and the physicians. And I had a little bit of that unique background that just fit in. So that was, I guess, 12 years ago now. I worked there for about 10 years, um, learning everything. Where I started there was kind of where our practice consultants are today. I was what's called an administrator. So I had a, this might sound very familiar, I had a pod of physicians. We called them either pods or IPAs, but the same concept of a group of physicians that we managed. And so this was single line, I mean, it was only the Medicare Advantage space. But what we did was we had to understand what the drivers were. And so it's Medicare, and the question became, what? how do we do this? What's unique about HealthSpring mm-hmm. that's different than traditional Medicare? And it all comes to value. Mm-hmm. What we did was we aligned the value of what the physicians wanted, that the main thing they wanted, high quality care for their customers, right? That their patients, our customers. First and foremost. Secondly, we asked them to do more things. If you're asked to do more things, what do you what would you expect? Some sort of return for that ask, right? Mm-hmm. So what we did was our model lined all those so that their physicians and their staff could 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 see a line of sight that if we're asking them to do things, to be more engaged with the patients. Very simple examples, the one we always use as a litmus test was 4:30 on a Friday afternoon. Patient calls the office and says, I don't feel well. Well, what's the answer? Yeah. If the staff said go to the ER, that's not the solution we're looking for. Our goal was the staff to say, okay, we'll stay here, come see us. That's alignment, and to get that alignment, you had to align the financial value as well. Mm -hmm. So what HealthSpring did, in its simplest form, is it did that. So I did that for 10 years. Um, Last three years, I ran the um, Tennessee Health Plan, about 100,000 lives at its peak. Um, So a lot of senior population that we had the privilege of managing. At the end of the day, they're the most deserving population. They're, I mean, they're our parents, our grandparents. We owe them. It was a, from a cultural standpoint, it was a relatively easy company to connect with. I mean, every day you came in trying to take care of a senior, not a real hard thing to really kind of get up in the morning for. You really enjoyed that. Um, but it also aligned the physicians. So it allowed us to think about that physician alignment. Now you see the connection here. About five months ago, I had the opportunity to join uh, Privy Health and kind of get all that background. So everything from the hospital to how we how we do that original medical malpractice. Think about it as the as the financial mechanisms to the physician engagement through HealthSpring and all that all came experience that we're bringing to the table here at um, Privia. And then we connect up to the value-based, value-based care space. Long, long answer to a very short question, but it's important to think about that, that pathway for me that drove to where I am today. And I like that you talk about kind of a continued thread and everything you've learned throughout your career. And in working with value-based care, I hear you mention a few things about physician engagement, which is obviously really important that physicians are engaged in this work. And it appears that we all know that value-based care is a thing that is happening. It's something that, in its bipartisan support, it's fully underway. But it feels like there's still a lot of debate over the speed in which it's going to happen. So there was a, uh, a recent survey from the Healthcare Executive Group in Change Healthcare that surveyed 185 healthcare executives. And nearly 40% said that we are still three or five years away from a market in which the majority of our value-based care relationships include upside or downside shared risk. 
17% said it will take more than five years and 6% think it will never happen. So I'm curious from your standpoint of working with a, you know, working on the payer side, now working with independent providers, you've had a lot of experience, obviously working with hospital executives. One, why do you think there's such a variety in, in this perspective of how soon is this going to happen? And from your perspective, where do you think that we are in the transition to, to risk and to value? Sure. Can't answer the variety. It's just any question, you're going to have variety, I'd say, too. But I'll say it this way. I don't believe the latter half of that poll. I, I truly believe value-based care is coming sooner rather than later, but it's a timeline. Mm-hmm. Value-based care isn't something you go contract for today and while I'm there. It's all about creating value. Mm-hmm. So you have to line all the, the lead-ups to that, right? Mm-hmm. Very simple example right now, Greg Kuzman and I and many others, that's a, that's a short list, but many others in, involved with trying to establish relationships with payers that will give us line of sight to a value-based contract. So what are things we need to do today that will ultimately put us in a position to have aligned values? And I'm, I'm going to say this now, I'll probably say it again later on in the interview, but aligned values isn't just money. I think you and I have had this conversation before, but aligned values that we're talking about are, are things, yeah, there's a financial component. If, I, if we're asking the docs to do more, I want the docs to be reward, rewarded more. If we save money for someone, sure, we should save some of the money and sharing some of that money with ourselves. But there's also time, there's effort, there's staff wear and tear, all those things that we need that we can help improve upon go into that value-based space. So think whenever I use the word value, don't get caught on just the dollar. It's right. about the whole aspect, right? The whole gamut. So um, go back to the question of, of how soon we're headed there. The simple example I was given is the contracts we're doing today have different steps to them. You have to accumulate enough memberships. So go to a, a Medicare Advantage example. If we go out to a Medicare Advantage company today and create an, uh, a pathway in the contract that aligns those values, mm-hmm. you have to get membership density, right? It does, on two members, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So we have thresholds of 1,000 or 1,500 lives in a program before some of these constructs kicked in, some of the value propositions kick in. So it takes time to build there. Medicare, just yesterday, yeah, just yesterday announced a new value-based model that, they, that, they're, that they're bringing out. Earlier this year, we had the MSSP program, um, Medicare Shared Savings Program, which is the way Medicare thinks about its members and how we manage its members. And if we work with, work with them and provide high-quality care and we save money compared to uh, the spend in the market or an average, think about an average spend in the market, if we save money compared to that, then we can share in some of that in those savings, right? That's aligned value. So Medicare is really, in a, in a unique way, leading the, the helping push or lead the case toward value-based care. Mm-hmm. What they realize is there's a, there's a. I think it's MedPAC did a survey about two or did a study about two years ago. I can't remember the exact one who did it. I think it was MedPAC, but basically it was a it was a trend line on Medicare spending. And in my lifetime, it runs out of money if we don't curb the spend. Mm-hmm. So Medicare sees that, and what they're trying to think is you can't just keep in this old fee for service world. If you think about what fee for service was, and we've talked about this again earlier today about kind of a widget mentality, which means I do something, I get paid for it. The incentive there is to what? Do more. I mean, if you want to make more money, then you need to do more. Mm-hmm. Medicare realized that won't hold. If that holds, Medicare gets the, the funding of Medicare becomes in question. I'm not a policy expert. I'm not a government expert on funding for that. Just one study. I'm not saying it's a, it's a fact for life. 
but it's an indicator of what's coming. So Medicare is the one that's pushing. We can't continue doing that. The way they see, at least today, as I understand it, the way they see the curve, the curve of spending to be bent downward is to align values. Doctors work with us. Get off the widget wheel. Think us about how do we provide high quality care at best value. If I save money, I'll share it with you. They believe that will bend the curve. Think about that is why I truly believe it's, you know, it's near term, not far term, that we're in value-based care. The one thing that the other, that, so that's Medicare, the other side of the equation is commercial. The difference is I worked for Cigna, um, it was called Cigna HealthSpring, but Cigna's a, a big commercial carrier as well. I uh, don't wanna give out stats, but a large, large percent of their business is what's called ASO, it was Administrative Services Organization. Why is that important? What it means is that, you know, high 80s of their percent of their business was not their money. They, they serviced the money for employers. It was the employers were self-insured. They paid their own health claims. So what Cigna did was we, we provided services of how you pay your claims, how you do certain case management programs, how you did anything related to the healthcare um, coverage for, for a company. We provided those services. But at Cigna, we couldn't agree to say, hey, if you, if you save money, we'll share the savings with you. We had to get the customers to agree to that. So all of a sudden you got a third party in place now in the commercial environment, right? You've got to get those customers to, to align to what we're trying to do. A little bit slower to align. It's, they're thinking, well, what's, you know, give me the proof points on it. So I think in the commercial space, I think it's a little bit longer than maybe even Medicare, but it's not years and years out. This same survey reported that providers and payers are focused on new ways to leverage population health data to keep up with non-traditional players entering the market. So I, I think with non-traditional players, you think of these really large tech companies, you know, your Google, Apple now has a healthcare suite. Um, how do you coach independent providers who are trying to keep up with the shift to value amid all of this noise in the market from all of these different players kind of entering in non-traditional ways? Actually, it's kind of a, a simple question, to be honest with you. It's, it's who we are, right? It's what Privy is. Think about tools, talent, technology. That's that's their core of what we are. So the providers, if, if you think about it, what they're doing is they're, they're joining a group. This is Mark Folk's opinion, but they're joining a group based on a belief. They, 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 we help kind of set the foundation for them. In other words, we pull some of the business work off them. That's an overly simplistic statement, but we pull some of the business work off of them so that they can focus on the clinical aspects, what they went to school for, what they trained for. They can think think about taking care of that patient, right? And then what they when they join Privia, what they understand is, think of a simple, uh, uh, single platform, the Athena platform across all the, all, the, all of our physicians, they understand that, that we've really spent years defining what that is and creating that so it's a very effective tool for physicians to work within their space. Far from perfect today, but better than, better than most of whatever that saying is, if not better than all, I don't know, but it's a very strong, a very strong tool that the physicians buy into. All these tech companies that are building all these different things, we look at that for them. The individual physician doesn't have to worry about that in her or his space. It comes down to that's what they believe in we're going to do for them, that we're going to help build the path forward, that we're going to try to make the, the business aspects as strong as we can for them and of ease of use as we can for them. We'll let them take care of the clinical aspects of the patients, and then we'll evaluate all that stuff. Go back to what we talked a few minutes ago about virtual health as an example. The tool that Graham and team built around that is a phenomenal tool that an individual physician couldn't build. 
where that started with us was external you know resources coming saying hey we've got this great widget you can buy of virtual health what we realized it didn't connect so we could have we could buy it off the shelf from a vendor and a, and a physician we didn't know that wasn't part of our platform would see patients and prescribe medicines document whatever whatever the it is mm-hmm. they would do but it wouldn't connect back to our platform so the you know the example i use is go back to my 90 year old mother i mentioned a few minutes ago my mother you know goes to see a patient goes is, uh, is sick on a saturday i can't reach anybody we go to virtual health on monday that they after they treat her this is a made-up story but after they treat her advisor or whatever they say go see your pcp on monday well, I got to take her to the PCP on Monday without a connected virtual health program. As far as the doctor knows, it didn't occur. There's nothing there to document what was going on. They're asking me, a non-clinical person, what was going on. My mother was dizzy. I don't know. She was just dizzy. I have yeah. no idea, right? So what occurs is in our platform, they have, they have the information right there in front of them. Mm-hmm. The doctor is documented. It's connected. It's coordinated. It's convenient. All those things, just a simple example of why how we take the complexity of what's all going on in healthcare and try to connect it so that doctor can do what they do best, which is take care of their patient. So we're talking about these non-traditional players entering the healthcare space, and a lot of them are really large consumer brands. And I think they largely focus on how do we redefine the healthcare experience? How do we redefine the way people consume healthcare? I mean, now you can track healthcare data on your watch, which is something that's fairly fairly new and and maybe data that even your provider could benefit from. So even though we're trying to kind of distill the noise of healthcare for for our providers to make sure they can really focus on their patients, do you think there's anything that we can learn from these large consumer brands in terms of creating the best patient experience? Absolutely. And just take a simple example of Amazon. And and there's some recent articles about customer experience in in the healthcare environment, but just connect Amazon. Real simple example, you go to log in, they know who you are, they have your credit card, they have your address. You do it how many times? Once. Mm -hmm. It's convenient. They know your preferences. So when you go on, it kind of prompts you for what it is. If you just think about that consumer experience, we've got to think about that within healthcare. I'll go back to my son who you know, wants to see their doctor on the phone. Well, he will get older. He will have complications. And in my guess, at some point in time, he'll want to have a more traditional, if there is such a word as traditional, relationship with a provider. I think it's somewhat his age and lack of complications is why he's comfortable using the phone right now. But if he gets sicker, he'll probably establish that more traditional experience. But when he gets there, he will have his expectations of growing up in the world of Amazon, of Facebook, all those things, Facebook, he's probably younger than that, but but all those things that impact or influence the modern consumer has to come into, in, into medicine. And it's not there yet. Um, I, uh, Jen Porter sent me an article one day about consumer experience, and it had one line in it that I, I just can't get out of my head, and it talks about on any other industry, if you're in a queue for something, Whatever the, whatever the it is, if the queue is delayed, you usually get an email or a call that says, hey, your package won't be delivered tomorrow. It's going to be delivered the day after that. They give you advice and warning. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to see my doctor and I have a 10 o'clock appointment, my doctor is a surgeon, say it's an orthopedic surgeon, and he or she had a complication that backed up their surgery that day, and they won't be able to see me to 11, do I get an email or a call? I sit there. You're right. It's a very simple example of how we can think about consumerism and how it could positively influence 
what we're doing day in, day out. Mm -hmm. it's, not a, it's not a condemnation. It's just the fact that the world's changing. And that's, again, well, you talked to Astrid earlier about why do doctors join Privia. It's one of the reasons we can help bring those things along mm -hmm. to really improve that customer experience. So shifting to value-based care obviously requires shared vision, focus, and uh, leadership, exceptional leadership from our physicians. So in your experience of working with doctors and obviously leading this work here at Privia, what do you think is the key for a physician leader looking to engage their staff in all the changes that come with the transition to value? Yeah, it, it's it, when you think about the physician and especially the staff, and if you ever heard me talk, you, you hear me mention that it's not just the physician. You've, if we don't bring the staff along, you really are missing because at the end of the day, and, and I learned this from my prior experience at HealthSpring where our customers, we actually had to attract or market our customers. They had to select us as their Medicare Advantage uh, plan. I could get the physician to understand everything I wanted he or she to understand, but when that member went in and asked that front office staff, hey, should I join HealthSpring? And they say, no, HealthSpring's horrible because it causes referrals or, or whatever the reasoning was, game over. That, that customer's gone, no matter what I convinced the doctor, right? Mm -hmm. So it's about the office. And when you think about that, I think there's kind of three keys to getting that office staff engaged. There's kind of three things I think they're, they're concerned with. One is the doctor. They, they are the front door for the doctor. And I've met with many a staff. And so on, the, on that Friday afternoon 4.30 story I shared earlier, the, the example I give you is if that staff member is just concerned about the doctor and doesn't understand the bigger picture of the value proposition we had in, in line with that physician and how it worked well for their practice how to and how it helped support that practice, they would likely tell the, the patient go to the ER because mm -hmm. they thought they were helping the doctor get home and get away from the office for the weekend, for lack of better words. So you've got to get the staff really to understand the value proposition for the doctor. Mm -hmm. The second thing that staffs are concerned about, actually, I, I would actually, if I could put them back in different order, I'd say this is the first thing they're concerned about is the patient. At the end of the day, they have very close relationships with their patients. Mm -hmm. And if you do things that would impact the quality of care or how they could afford uh, provide care to those patients, there's an immediate negative reaction to that. So you've got to think about whenever we're presenting thing to, to, uh, to the offices, it's got to be very patient quality centric so they understand that what we care about, which we do, is that, is that patient care. Mm -hmm. A lot of times in value-based care, it has a tendency to go to dollars. Let's talk about dollars. Don't lead with dollars ever because that's not the most important part. End of the day, it's that patient. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing that's, that's important to the staff is their own why. It's why do they come to work? What's the value proposition? Many times in value-based care, you are asking folks to do more. Mm -hmm. uh, go back to an example we talked about earlier today where kind of in the, if you will, quote, old days of fee-for-service, the physicians, uh, kind of, they're, they're really, really, really good at taking care of the patient in front of them. That's what they're trained to do take care of whatever the issues are. They're totally focused. They want to take care of that patient. And then they leave the room, document, and go to the next patient. And then they're given that second patient now the best attention you can possibly give. That's what they care about. But what traditionally in fee-for-service was when the first patient, when they ordered the, the test, whatever it is, the, you know, the, the, the quality test that they wanted the, the patient to have, there wasn't quite the follow-up to make sure that it was being done. It was kind of assumed the patient was responsible for that. Population health, value-based care, whatever you want to call parts of it now, has changed the dynamic to say, look, that is part of the health system to try to figure out not only order it, but what can we do to make sure it gets done. There, there's a, 
there's a line at customer choice at some point in time. Someone might not want to have a test and it's their effective their right not to have it. But up until that line, it's, it is becoming more and more, at least the perception in the industry, that the staff and the offices are, are, are trying to get those things done. That's more work. Mm-hmm. So same thing with the doctor. Do we align the value to help, help the, support the staff? So think about their why, what they're trying to take care of while they're at work and make sure we're connected to that on that as well. My opinion, if you kind of cover those three things, you can then engage the staff and the physicians. My experience with physicians, they inherently know this with their staff. They know how to pull their staff forward. They know what's worked for them. It's just about taking the time to do that and then making sure we're helping reinforce that with their staff and the doctors. And we're talking about kind of having physician leadership and what that means for the transition to value. And we know that physician-led ACOs are, um, you know, really creating value because they are, they're a little bit more nimble and they can kind of make those shifts and, and they can make those decisions a little bit easier than maybe some of these larger, larger hospital-led ACOs. But we also know that physician-led ACOs are leaving some of these value-based programs. So what do you think sets Pervia's physician-led ACO apart in terms of our recent success? How are we really keeping our providers engaged, creating value, generating shared savings, and kind of maintaining that success despite the fact that so many other physician-led ACOs are not able to kind of duplicate that? Sure. I, I think it goes back to what I said earlier, which is why they joined Previa to begin with. They're agreeing to join a group that is focused on where where the industry's headed, mm-hmm. which there, there's a big component of fee-for-service, there's a big component of quality, there's a big component of value-based care, et cetera. There's many components to it, but they're buying in and they understand that what we can do is help them, uh, you know, that path forward that's, they understand that we can, like I said earlier, take the business kind of efforts off of them, let them focus on clinical, but more importantly, in, the, in this world, think about the ACO, is we know what drivers in, that make it successful. Mm-hmm. What are what are uh, core components to it that we can help go, you know, push through the Athena system, how we educate the physician with the practice consultants, how we engage with our staff day in and day out, so they understand what helps drive value in it. Mm-hmm. And going way back to the beginning, again, coming into Privia, they're buying into the culture, they're buying into what we're trying to create. So we're able to show them uh, what the core drivers are and ex- explain so they understand that and then they engage around it. Mm-hmm. So I truly believe part of it is uh, what we privy have, have, have put out there as the entire organization or um, culture of the organization is what I'd say. Then you have the physician leadership. That's a vital component to it. We've got uh, each of our ACOs are led with a pod type structure and having that physician to physician interaction is vital. At the end of, and I've said this to many docs, at the end of the day when I walk in and talk to them, I'm just a suit, I'm just a business person. Mm-hmm. I really am, and people make fun of it, that's what it is. At the end of the day, I'm just a suit. Doctors respond to doctors. So our governance structure is the other component that drives great success for us because they listen to one another. They can have conversations about what are you doing that's, you know, if we're measuring something, whatever it is. One doctor's doing well, one doctor's not doing as well as that one. The discussion can quickly be, what are you doing so I can improve my performance to your type levels? And then when doctors have that interactive conversation, they tend to listen to each other. I can sit up there all day long and say, doctors, you should do this. I've never served a day in a clinic, never worn a white coat. But it's up when a doctor has a doctor conversation, it helps drive it. To me, those two things, the tools, you know, tools, talent, technology that we provide from a, a previous standpoint, 
um, engage with that physician to physician governance, it's unbeatable. One thing you talked about I thought was interesting was the fact that Medicare is really pushing for the transition to value because obviously the population aging into Medicare and Medicare Advantage plans is massive, right? So like we have to figure out something to do there. I was also thinking about the fact that on the opposite end, millennials are gonna surpass the baby boomer generation, I believe either this year or next year in terms of population size. And they push for a very different healthcare experience. So I guess I wonder if you see on these two opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of you know your younger population of patients and your aging population of patients, and obviously with your experience, you understand what it's like taking care of people who are aging into that um, demographic. How does that affect kind of the transition of value? What have we learned from like these two opposite ends of the spectrum and how does that affect how we as Privia move forward with providing value to our patients across the spectrum? Yeah, from, from us providing value, uh, I'd almost say it's it's almost the same. What, what I mean by that is, uh, I'll give you the example of me right now. I've got a 90-year-old mother, and whoever's heard me talk has heard about my 90-year-old mother. Sorry about that. But I have a 90-year-old mother that's part of my life. I have a wife and family who's part of my life. And then I have my youngest daughter, 16 years old. So think about that age differential. I've got a 26-year-old son. Totally different ways we access healthcare. It's it, believe me, it's totally different ways we access healthcare. In terms of the value-based space, what we're building is you think about the word customer experience, and it goes. You can start it in Medicare if you want to start on the other side. It doesn't really matter. But just I'll just go to what I know, my knowledge base. Right, go to Medicare for a minute. Medicare um, has a. Um, it's called a STARS program. It's a um, it's a quality program that Medicare defines, and what it does is impact how much money Medicare can fund to a private insurance company, but a Medicare Advantage plan. Don't don't worry about the details, but it's a, it's just a defined program and it has a relatively significant impact on it. That defined program, 27%, I think that's the right number, 22 to 27% of that quality program is about customer experience. So even, even in that Medicare population, they're connecting the dots to customer experience. From our standpoint, we've got to think about what the customer wants. What are their needs? We've recently had some data pulled about our patient portal information, and you'd be surprised, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but you'd be surprised at the percentage of the of our, of our senior population that's accessing our tools through our portal. Mm-hmm. I think, I'll be honest with you, my bias was, I was thinking it was more millennial and younger. It's it's surprisingly higher in the, in the, in the um, baby boomer and older population that are accessing resources this way. So Medicare, even even though it's at the Medicare space, has pushed change down into the organization that's benefited us all. Now, other areas, virtual uh, virtual health, virtual care, those type capability sets that we're building, that's what I think about when I think of my kids. My son does not want to see his doctor, period. End of story, he just thinks going to an office is just wrong. But it's his opinion, it's the way he does it. So virtual care, you know, virtual health capabilities are vitally important for that. All these things are self-sustaining and self-forming. You really can't say, well, I'll do this for the millennial generation. I'll do this for the senior population. It's so blended nowadays. And really what happens is what value-based care does, because it's, it's really across the spectrum, it's helping us fund those that really influence you know, for everybody to provide that option and those choices. You know, another example, thinking about how the industry is, is, is struggling with when value-based care will come through. A part of it is, is really what we've built is why Maybe one of the reasons I'm so high on value-based care and why I think it's so important how we as an organization will get there is, is what we've built. We've got a 
effectively a three-part platform that does it. We, I've talked about this already, building the kind of the base for the group. In other words, how, how do we help the group in those business operations? Think about it as securing your foundation. That's probably not a good example, but it's a, it's a visual of how, how, how do we help the practice really secure its, its business operations? How do we take a lot of that work off them? Let us help us do that in our contracting efforts that Greg and Matt and others are involved with is how do we think about um, making sure we, we, we're supporting the business operations of the organization so that it's got that solid foundation so the doctor doesn't have to worry about that at night. They can think about the clinical components. The next component is building that clinical valuation. What we understand, I'll just be relatively brief on this, but through those quality contracts, what they're paying for the resources of Privia to do is to figure out what are those drivers within the contracts that help produce value, help produce high quality, help produce shared savings, help produce time where the doctor can hit a pause button and spend a little bit more time with the patient to connect to connect better with that patient and think have a little bit of time to think a little bit more about that patient. Those value drivers are what we can help build into the system and work within their provider workflow so that they don't even know they might be dealing with a value-based condition, for lack of better words. It may just be in their system, kind of in their day-to-day workflow, and they're buying into us doing that. And the third one is really patient experience. So that goes down to what we've talked about before, my son, my mother, my wife, how do they interact with their provider? And that's one of the things we bring a value to. So think about online scheduling, think about the virtual health capabilities that we have, both with the PCP and the, and the urgent care capabilities. Think about our find a doc, all those type things. An individual provider just doesn't have the tools and resources to create that. Mm-hmm. So we create all those for them. That goes to that customer experience. And we've got to provide good customer experience. And these are those beginning foundations to what we'll be able to build on as we go forward. I want to thank Mark for joining us today and thank you for listening. To learn more information about Privia and how we're securing the future for independent providers, please visit priviahealth.com.